Uh, I'd invite you to open up to Mark chapter 11, and we'll spend some time, Mark chapter 11, just to set the passage in context. Uh, This is a theme in Mark's gospel, that everything that we're reading from now forward will all take place in the space of, uh, of a week. This is Holy Week. This is what we would call Palm Sunday, and we know that Jesus enters Jerusalem now, and we know that um, he's going to be crucified a few days later. So Mark's going to slow up uh, his narrative and, and hone in on these final words, these final days of Jesus's earthly life. We're Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, there Jesus sent two of his disciples And he said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied to a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Amen. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Dear God, we turn our hearts to your word and we acknowledge that you are our teacher, that though a man uh, stands in this pulpit, a fragile, broken man, that you're pleased to speak to your people through your word and the faithful preaching of it. Father, I pray that uh, your words would be mine. I pray that you would encourage your people this hour. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And so uh, I want to take a minute to talk to the children. Not that I'm neglecting the adults, but I want to at least take a moment to get our children to kind of focus in. Hey, if you read the Bible, you're going to see some weird stuff in the Bible. What I mean by weird stuff is there are going to be times when you read it and some of the things will just be strange, almost comical. For example, uh, Ezekiel, he's a prophet in the Old Testament. And did you know that he was called to take some bricks and draw on it, on them and build this place city and then to build these battering rams and to destroy the city? It's kind of weird, isn't it? Sounds like a Lego game where you get to make something and destroy it. He was also called to go in his house and pack up a bag, even though he wasn't really going anywhere. And he was to cut a hole in the wall of his house and climb through the wall 
and then walk out of the city. And he was supposed to keep doing that. And then he was also supposed to cook food, but not like a feast that your mom or dad might have, but uh, a, a poor man's food. And he was supposed to cook it on top of cow poop. It's kind of strange, isn't it? He was also supposed to sit. Think about this. He was supposed to go to work, and all he would do for over a year was to lay on one side and cook food on poop. That's it. That was his job. And when that year was up, he had to turn on the other side and lay on that side for 40 days. And the one that I hate the most is Isaiah. The Lord actually told him to get naked and to walk around the city for three years. That's all he did was walk around the city naked for three years preaching. Now, when you see those things, it looks comical, almost like, are we really reading this in our Bibles? And the answer is yes. You see, when Isaiah had to walk around the city naked, God had a word for Israel. As the prophet walks around naked, you're going to be taken out of your land and your buttocks will be showing. As Ezekiel is packing up a bag and, being, and, and going out of his house, you're going to be taken out of your house. As Jeremiah has to build these nooses to put himself in and go show himself to the kings, Israel, you're going to be taken out of the land. In other words, that whenever you see those kind of over-the-top things happening in the Bible, they can kind of look funny, but God was always dead serious. That's kind of helpful for understanding what's happening in our passage today. This week and next week, we're going to see some over-the-top stuff. I mean, think about the image of Jesus going into Jerusalem on a baby donkey, one that had never been ridden before, not the mother, but the smallest one. It's like your mom and dad trying to ride your tricycle down the street. That's what it would have looked like to see a grown Jesus mounting a foal, a colt. And then next week, Jesus is going to talk to a fig tree. He's going to actually see a fig tree and talk at it. Like he's going to talk to a plant and tell a plant not to grow again. It's kind of over the top when you read it. But again, the question that we have to wrestle with, what serious truth is God communicating through these over-the-top enactments. You see, it might look comical to see Jesus talk to a tree or ride in on a small donkey, but God has some serious things to say, serious things to his original audience and a serious thing to us this morning. And so I want to ask that question, what is God, even through what might look humorous or over the top, what is he trying to say to us that's worth us seeing and believing? The first thing we see in this passage is that, seriously, the real king has come. 
seriously, however foolish it might look for Jesus to ride in on a colt of a donkey, the real king your heart was made for has come. Now, to understand what's happening in our passage this morning, you kind of have to understand the Old Testament. If you just pick up in Mark and you just see Jesus going from the Mount of Olives and going into the city that particular way and then finding a colt, it looks kind of foolish, right? But there's more to the story. You kind of have to back up. It's, it's almost like we're walking into a movie theater 45 minutes after the movie has started. If you try to make sense of it, it's going to be hard. But if you can kind of step back and see the bigger story, then it all makes sense. There was a prophet, and his name uh, was Zechariah. And in your English Bibles, it's the second to last book of the Old Testament. So if you turn to Matthew, you turn back two books, that's Zechariah. But technically speaking, it's out of order. Zechariah was a prophet during the time of Ezra. So think about it. It's 586 B.C., 586 years before we think Jesus was born. And Judah was sent into Babylon, into exile. And 70 years later, give or take, they're allowed to come back into the land. And when they come back in the land, they have no temple. They have no city. Jerusalem is in shambles. And so they start the work of trying to rebuild the city. But the first thing that they try to rebuild is the altar and then the temple. And they're met with opposition. On the one hand, these kings give them resources, but the people in the land at the time are, are making them afraid. And then they sort of stop building what they're supposed to be building and start building their houses. And so the Lord raises up two prophets. He raises up Haggai and he raises up Zechariah. And what do they do? They try to spur them on. The Lord is with you. He has not forgotten you. Put your hand back to the plow and be faithful to rebuild. And Zechariah was one of them. And in Zechariah's uh, prophecy or in his book, he gets these weird dreams, these weird visions, and he starts to see things. And, and much like our dreams, that they aren't chronological, we don't always know what they mean. I mean, I had a dream this week that I was caught in barbed wire. And every time I tried to get out of the barbed wire, it sank more deeply into my clothes, into my skin. And I woke up, I'm like, man, what in the world does that mean? And so if you interpret dreams, like see me after the service, right? <laughs> but if you know your own dream life, you're, then you know it, it's not always neat and tidy. And so Zechariah gets these visions. He has eight of them, eight oracles, eight prophecies. And here's the key when you're reading Zechariah. When you see this phrase, on that day, plus the Lord will, Zechariah is seeing into the future. That somehow this image of the Messiah is coming into focus. And he's telling the people who are discouraged, a day is coming when your king will come. Your king will come. And so, uh, Greg, will you show? These are a few passages. I want to I illustrate it. Go to the next one for me. The next. All right. So notice the phrase, on that day, right? There's the phrase. 
And then notice the I will. That's the future tense. I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. But, but Zechariah is saying they're going to gather against this city, but the city is weighty. It's heavy. You will not be able to fight against this city. On that, oh, next slide. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike panic. I will strike every horse with panic. So it's the image of a war, that there's a war happening and there are horses there and there are riders on it. But on that day, I'll strike the horses with panic and its riders with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Next, next one. On that day, I will make Judah, I will make the clans of Judah a blazing pot. Next slide. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that even the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. All right, that's enough. It's in Zechariah 3, Zechariah 9, Zechariah 11, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14. You get all of these images of on that day. Now, why is that important? Because Zechariah has two that are relevant to this passage. He says, on that day, and I'll read it for you. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem. That's Zechariah 14. Zechariah 9. On that day, the Lord their God will save them. As the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine in the land. And then he says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So now connect the dots. Zechariah says two things are going to happen on that day. Your king will stand on the Mount of Olives. And on that day, your king will mount a donkey, a colt. Did you notice what Mark says about Jesus in our passage? And they came to Jericho. No, no, no. When they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany, and Mark tells us where Jesus was at the Mount of Olives. That's Zechariah 14. And then he tells us what Jesus chooses to ride into Jerusalem on. And it's not a war horse. It's a colt, the foal of a donkey. You want to know what God is saying? This isn't a vision anymore. That day that Zechariah saw that was confusing and perplexing, it's happening right here, right now. Israel, this is how you'll know your king. And did you notice how everybody is responding? If you paid attention to the passage, Jesus only says two things. 
He tells the disciples where to go and what to get. And then he tells the disciples what to say to the people that he's taking the coat from. Everything else in Mark chapter 11 right here is, is a description. It's a description on where they were and where they walked. It's a description of what they rode on. It's a description on what the people were saying and what the people were doing. And here is what you see. You see kingly activity happening. This cult had never been ridden by anyone. Doesn't that sound like a king who has this animal raised just for him who no one else can mount on? Think about what would have been happening in this week. It's Holy Week. Jerusalem would have swelled from 500,000 to, we think, 2.5 million people. And you and your disciples go and find a colt that's tied up, and the people are asking you, hey, why are you bothering the colt? And you actually tell them the master needs it, the Lord needs it. And they say, okay. Now, I don't know about you, but if I got 2.5 million people in a small city, I'm thinking, I can't find you. I can't find my animal. I can't get it back. How do I know you're going to bring it back? And what you see those persons doing in the passage, okay, enough said. Did you notice what the disciples did with their cloaks? It was the blind man last week who left his cloak, and now the text this morning actually says, and the disciples put their cloaks on Jesus, and it wasn't just the disciples. Everybody in front of Jesus were putting their cloaks on the ground and waving what we think are palm branches. Why? Because they're giving the king royal treatment. And their minds, they're connecting the dots. This is it. And the disciples just thought that Jesus is about to go into Jerusalem and come in and ride in his glory. And we want to be at the right hand and the left. And even though this crowd right here, they're doing more than what they tr truly know, they're actually responding the right way. They're praising this king. They're bowing before this king. And you want to know what else they're doing? They're pledging allegiance to this king. That's problematic. Why? Because the Jews were in their land, but it was occupied by Romans. And so in Jerusalem, Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great, was the Tetrarch. He kind of had that little region. He was there. On top of that, Pontius Pilate, who was the governor, was also in Jerusalem. And that's why when Jesus is getting tried, he's getting tried between the high priest of Israel and then he's going to Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate is sending him back to Herod. They're going back and forth. Why? Because there are two military political figures occupying the same city. And right outside of the city, do you want to know what the people of God are doing? They are declaring allegiance not to Pilate and not to Herod. This is our king. And isn't that kind of what we need to hear in our day and age? No matter how you vote, you do know that your king is never, ever in the White House. 
ever. He's never in the governor's mansion. He's never in the mayor's house. The Lord has one king, and it's Jesus. And we don't get to elect him into office. And he's never leaving office. He does not share his glory with anyone. Government is good. It's a gift of God. But it is not the source of God's people's comfort and hope. We believe that Jesus is on the throne regardless of what happens. And we can take comfort there. Good times, bad times, prosperous times, hard times. We have a king, and he mounted a donkey, and he rode into Jerusalem, and he went to a cross, and he died to make you his. He's your king now and always, and he's good, and he's real. The second thing we see in the passage is that, seriously, this king gives us the real Hosanna we need. Notice the people are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're actually saying the words from Psalm 118. It'd be sweet to just go and read that on your own. But they are saying through this word, Hosanna, save us. Save us now. Save us, please. And this is where I think they're doing the right thing with their praise and loyalty. But we know from how the weeks, how the events of this week play out, they're asking for the wrong thing. So the question is, who do they want saving from. And I have a sneaking suspicion that when you look at Zechariah and you look at all the things that are associated with on that day, I will, you know what they're thinking? Because they see Zechariah 9 being fulfilled, they see Zechariah 14 being fulfilled, they're thinking Everything Zechariah saw will happen on that day is about to be fulfilled. And so on that day in Zechariah, Jerusalem will be like a stone and anybody who comes against it will be crushed. On that day, according to Zechariah himself, he will strike the horses with madness and the riders with confusion. And on that day, says Zechariah, that the angel of the Lord will go before them and even the weak among them will become strong like David. And so in their minds, I guarantee you they're thinking because we see the two things on that day happening, then it must be all the rest of the things happening. And so the route they want Jesus to go when he comes into Jerusalem, once you go on over there to Herod's temple and put him on notice, Go on, travel up to Rome and put Tiberius on notice. 
Go on, put Pontius Pilate on notice because your word tells us that when you come on that day, we will be on the top of the world. And Jesus disappoints him. We know he disappoints him because of what happens later. This same crowd that's yelling Hosanna is going to say crucify him. Crucify him. They're going to free a murderer and kill the author of life. And you have to ask the question, how do you go from what we see right here to what we're going to read a few chapters later, what is happening? How do you make that turn? And on the one hand, we can quote Acts and say, God the Father is sovereign. He is working through their sin to accomplish his purposes, and that is absolutely true. But why are they deceived? Because they don't like the route that Jesus just went when he came into Jerusalem. He didn't come with weapons. He didn't go stand before Herod. He didn't go stand before Pontius Pilate as a victor. He didn't send them into exile so that Israel could have their land. Do you want to know what Jesus did when he came into Jerusalem, according to Mark? Look at it. And this is it, 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 it blows my mind. We know that when he asked for the donkey. He says, go immediately do it. And then you tell the owners I will immediately return it. Mark uses both immediately. So in my mind, it means that what he's trying to do is to ride into Jerusalem on this beast of burden. Once he does that, there's probably this sending it back because Jesus isn't going to lie. And then where does he go? It says he walks into the temple. He looks around the temple because it was late. And then what did he do after that? It says that he left and walked back to Bethany with his disciples. That's the start of the disappointment with Jesus. He walks to the temple, not to the palace. He checks Israel's worship, not what Herod is doing. And he turns his back and walks out of the city. And in turning his back and walking out of the city, you know what he's saying? I'm not playing the game y'all want me to play. You want me to come and give you temporary joy. You want me to come and solve this problem you have with Rome. And Jesus is saying, you have a greater problem. And it's not the tyranny of Rome. You have a greater king that's at war with you. And he's not sleeping in Herod's palace. You have a problem of sin. And you have a problem with my holy father. That's why in Zechariah, do you want to know the first thing in Zechariah 3 that the prophet sees will happen? It's not make Jerusalem like a stone. It's not scattering the horses. The first thing that Zechariah sees will happen on that day 
Listen to me. I have set a stone before Joshua with seven eyes on it, declares the Lord. And I will remove the iniquity of this land on a single day. That's Zechariah 3. You hear what Jesus is saying? Y'all want the blessings of the day without the barrier that's getting in the way. And that's your iniquity and your sin. And so when they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, Jesus says, oh, I will do it. But it's not going to be from Rome. It's going to be from my father. It's going to be from his wrath. I'm going to leave the city and I'm going to come back into it. And those men you want me to deliver you from, they're going to try me. And I'm going to go to a cross innocent as a suffering servant. It's going to look foolish in the eyes of the world. But my kingdom is not of this world. And I will lay down my life and give it as a ransom for many. He's going to give us the real Hosanna to save us from our sin, our iniquity, our guilt, and our shame. And he's a good king for that. What parent among you have children? You just give them every single thing they want. At some point, you learn we're wise. And not everything they want is, is what they need. And godly parents will make that discernment. We will forego the tantrums. We will forego them being upset because we won't give them a phone at age 11 with unrestricted access. I know that hurts them in the moment, but because we're wise parents, we say, no, we're seeing the big picture. How much more does Jesus do that? He sees, I know you think you want this and need this, but I'm a wise and good king. I know what you need and what you need is me. And that's good news. If you know this king, he has dealt with all of your iniquity on a single day. That for years, God had been patient and kind with people. And the weight of sin was accruing interest, accruing interest, accruing interest. And if we're on this side of the cross, God sees that our sin is accruing a debt, accruing a debt, accruing a debt. And in one single day, when the Lord Jesus Christ was on the cross, the Lord let the bottom of his wrath fall out upon him. And in one single day, he has pardoned all of our iniquity and he has given you the Hosanna your heart longs for. And that's freedom yes. from the penalty 
and power of sin. He did it in a day, and it's yours by faith. He's a good king. The last thing we see in the passage is that this king alone makes us partakers of his hidden but real kingdom. This king alone makes us partakers of his hidden but real kingdom. Did you notice what they said when they saw Jesus? Hosanna, Hosanna, right? They, 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 they're screaming, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And so just to, to split hairs here, there's a promise that the one who rules over the kingdom of God is going to be the son of David. It's what the blind man said last week. This is the son of David. It's what they're saying this hour, this moment right here, the coming kingdom of David. Now, make no mistake, the kingdom of David and the kingdom of God are not the same thing. But what they are saying is that the one who sits on the throne of the kingdom of God is going to be an offspring of David. And so as Jesus reigns over the kingdom, as the great, 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 great grandson of David, he's doing both. Now, did you notice what's happening? When they see Jesus coming into Jerusalem, mounted on the colt, what do they say? Hosanna. The kingdom of David is finally coming. And they're wrong. Why are they wrong? Because if you've been tracking with this idea of the kingdom in Mark's gospel, we're in Mark 11. Do you remember the first time the kingdom of God comes up in Mark's gospel? It was way back in Mark chapter 1. Jesus was baptized. Holy Spirit descended upon him. John the Baptist was arrested. The father from heaven says, this is my beloved son. I'm pleased with you. And the first words out of Jesus's mouth, the kingdom of God is now here. Repent and believe the gospel. Why is that important? Because they think the kingdom is coming with the coming of Jesus in Jerusalem right here. But Jesus himself said the kingdom of God came way back here. So for three years, let me, let, let's do the math. For three years, Jesus has been preaching the gospel and people have been believing the gospel. For three years, Jesus has been doing miracles and the creation has been obeying him. For three years, the dead have been being raised. The, the, the sick girl was dead at the beginning of his ministry, and she was brought to life. At the beginning of his ministry, he's calling disciples, and they're leaving everything they had to follow him. That he is 
giving the blind sight. He is making the lepers clean. He is telling the winds and the waves to calm down. And so for three years, the kingdom of God has already been present. And yet what these people are saying on Palm Sunday is the kingdom of is here. Jesus is saying, no, it's been here. Your journey come lately. And that dovetails perfectly with what Jesus has said about the kingdom in the book of Mark. In the book of Mark, he says the kingdom of God is like a parable. To those on the outside, they don't see it. But if you know the king, you see it. The kingdom of God is like a little mustard seed that if you were to look at it, you would miss it. But it's going to grow into this mighty tree and be a mighty fortress. But the world's going to miss it. They're not going to see it. But if you know the king, you see it. The kingdom of God, right? You can't get into it unless you become like a child and have childlike faith. And if you love your riches and your possessions, it's impossible for you to get into it. You get this image that what Jesus is saying about his reign, about his rule, is it's complex and it's also hidden. And that's true, right, for you. You come here and you worship a God that you can't see. And some of this probably looks foolish to others. With your money, you don't spend it all on yourself, but you're generous. With your time, you give it in the service of the king. And here is how the world looks at you. For what? I don't see no king on the throne. You suffering just like I'm suffering. You see what I'm saying? Like it looks absolutely foolish. And that's the point. The kingdom of God is hidden, elusive, complex. And what Jesus is saying, if you know the king, it's not a parable anymore. You see. You see. The dots are being connected. Your allegiances are being changed. You're being remade after the image of the king when everyone else around you is blind. It's like walking into a CSI story where you see the crime scene and it looks perfectly clean. And then a forensic scientist comes in there and they do their work and all of a sudden, it's filthy, it's nasty, it's blood, it's DNA everywhere. But if you walk into the room with your naked eyes, you see nothing. And here's what Jesus is saying he's going to do for you. If you are his, I'm going to take those things that are invisible and hard and elusive. And it's my good pleasure to reveal. And even more, we're not just going to see the kingdom. We're going to embody the kingdom. The world says, don't confess sins. Don't show weakness. In the kingdom of God, 
confess and plead for mercy. The world says, I cannot change. I am who I am and I will always be this. And the kingdom of God says, no, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Not by your strength, not by your might. The Lord's strength is made perfect in your weakness. You can change. The world says, spend your money all on you, ball till you fall. But in the kingdom of God, we're storing treasures up in heaven that moths cannot destroy and thieves cannot steal and rust will not waste away. The world says, hold on to grudges, be slow to hand out forgiveness. And in the kingdom of Christ, it's be quick to forgive Forgive those who sin against you, even as you are forgiven by the Father. That in other words, what Jesus is saying, the world will say, if you want to be great, boss people around and work your way to the top, Jesus says, greatness in my kingdom is becoming a servant. It's an upside down kingdom, and it's the same thing Jesus did when he walked in, walked, rode in there on a mule, on a donkey, and then turned his back and walked back out. And then the Lord of glory submitted himself to be crucified when he had all the power at his disposal to summon legions of angels. It's counterintuitive. It's upside down. And if we know that king, guess what? We'll see the kingdom. And it'll get worked in our own hearts. Thieves who used to steal will no longer steal, but will work and then turn around and share with those in need. That's in Ephesians. We're talking about a revolution. And if we know King Jesus, he's going to show it to you. He is more committed to you than you are to him. He's going to be kind to show it to you. He's going to be relentless in pursuing you. He's going to open our eyes and our hearts for all that he has in store for us because it's his delight to do this for his people. That's what Mark is showing us. We see the kingdom. And by his grace, we live like it. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, do pray that the truths of this passage would be real to us. Jesus, I pray for those who are weak and needy, that we would be mindful that we have a strong king who loves us and cares for us. I pray for those who think that our ultimate needs are things. Lord, I pray that you will remind them that our ultimate need is you. Thank you for the other side of your kingdom. It's here, but it's going to come in its fullness one day. One day, no one will stand against you. One day, your people will see you go to war and do war against the flesh, the world, the devil. One day we will shine in glory 
with light. One day there will be no sin and no sadness and no sorrow. And we will be with the Lamb forever. You've given us a down payment. We see it. We taste it. We see it by faith. And we also rest in faith for the full revealing of all things. Father, I pray that you will make us mindful of your kingdom, which is here. Would you empower us by your spirit to live like it is? We love you. Amen.